You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. special time with them. Everyone else, take your Bible and turn to James chapter 5. So James is coming to a conclusion. This is always bittersweet for me when we have a series finale, and this is what this is in our series. It's an entire new life. It's an entire new lifestyle, and it goes way beyond the profession, and our new identity starts changing our activity. We've been seeing that theme, that recurring theme, all throughout. There's been another parallel theme that we've noticed, and that is this isn't about perfection. This is about progress. Um, James has been hitting us pretty hard time and again, week after week. You know, every week it feels like we're getting punched in the face a little bit. This sermon is round 10 with the final knockout punch, and James is now going to turn his attention a little bit more. He's been building up to this. But he is now turning the focus on the afterlife. What our life is going to be like after our time here on earth and into eternity. Because there's going to be a day when we stand before him, a judgment day, and we give an account for everything that we did. And in the message today, as James concludes this chapter, it's going to be a look at progress towards the future, not perfection for the present. So look with me at James chapter 5, and let's read this chapter together. We're going to pack a lot in today. Verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, capital J, is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and if someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I could have easily broken up the message today into three separate sermons, which I almost did, all right? But sometimes it's helpful not to just break it down and to see the overarching narrative. Because even though there's three distinct things happening, there's three distinct sections, these all tie together in James 5 as we look towards the future hope that we have. We're specifically going to see three direct preparations for Judgment Day. James is talking to some different people. We're all hearing this today, but there's three direct preparations you can have. And here's the first one. It's point number one. Personally examine what your money says about your heart. All right, so we know... Uh, what we just read was pretty intense, right? Some of us are still reeling from the first six verses of what we just read. And weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James has been pretty, pretty rough in this book, but, but the way he talks in these first six verses are almost at a different level than what we've seen throughout the rest of this book. Is it not? I mean, do you feel that? Like, wow, he's not even providing much hope here. I thought we were learning about progress for the future, not perfection in the, in the present. Uh, but this sounds like James, if it sounds like James is almost talking to someone else, it's because he actually is. He is not speaking right now to the 12 tribes who were in dispersion scattered abroad, like this letter was addressed to in the very beginning. That phrase in verse 1 saying, come now, that's translated come now, that's an indicator that James is making a transition for a second, and he's specifically addressing a different group of people, the rich. This is a group of people that are different than the brothers and sisters that James has been challenging and exhorting throughout the entirety of this book, most of this book anyway. In verse 7, James is going to go back to addressing the brothers and sisters, the church, and you'll notice they're called a confession, more on that ahead. But the rich right here that he's talking to are awaiting a judgment of misery. Their riches have rotted and their garments are moth-eaten and their precious metals are corroding. They have laid up the wrong kind of treasure here. They have lived in luxury. They have self-indulged off the abuse of their underlings. So this is an open warning it's not directed at the genuine church, but to anyone who hears it, just like today in this room, not everyone is a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Not everyone here today is a genuine follower of the way. And James isn't holding back. He's warning you about the end game of the path that you're traveling. And this is the warning. 
it's, it's not going to be pleasant what you have coming. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So he's not talking to the church here. Now, I realize that this isn't pointed at most of us directly. So you may be thinking, why is James being so hard on these people that he's classifying as the rich people? Why should they weep and howl? And what does this have to do with those of us who aren't living in luxury off of the exploitation of other human beings? Because I would say that's probably most of us in the room, right? <laughs> We're not doing that. Well, James put this in his letter that was addressed to the New Testament church, so we need to hear it. And here's how I'd like to unpack it for you. God is not anti-money. God is pro-people. It's good for us to hear this, all right? This is all throughout the Bible. God chooses a group of people. He started with the nation of Israel in, in the Old Testament. Now he's primarily using the church. But he chooses people, he blesses them, and he says, I want you to be a blessing to others. Salvation is a big component of this. This isn't going to really happen if, unless there's repentance and, and there's forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. But God says, if you know me, you know that I love people. So if you really love me, you will love people too. And I want to bless you as you bless people. I have a plan for all of this. And, and we see this throughout Scripture. Ephesians 5 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved you, and gave himself up for you, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then you see that we are to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. So this is Bible 101, but from God's perspective, if you don't love people, he's going to be upset. That's not that hard, right? So far, so far you got that? God's not anti-money, he's pro-people. He wants to bless you. He wants you to bless others with the money that he has provided to you. He doesn't want you to misuse that and oppress and harm other people with it. So God has just wrath when you don't value what he values. He is going to be upset at that. Now, here's what happens when wickedness runs rampant. God is going to eventually judge it. And if wickedness goes unpunished forever, would we like that? Of course not. Like, God wouldn't be a just God if he didn't judge wickedness. So none of us should have a problem with this. We know that this is, this is fair. People shouldn't get away with murder and mayhem and abuse. No, there is justice because we have a just God. People are not going to get away with sin. So God is consistent with his character, and the punishment of sin is described right here. It is separation from God and from having a relationship with God for eternity. But the question is, what does overhearing this warning have to do for you and for me who aren't just faking it? We really are genuine followers of Jesus, and we're trying to live for eternity. So here it is. This is where it gets simple for us, okay? We're overhearing this warning, and what it means for us is don't get swept up in the same trivial pursuits that the world is living for. The same Things that the world is enslaved to. The passions of what I can do with all my money and my wealth. 
If you make that the focus, you start loving money more than you love Jesus, you're going to go down a very dark path. The common mistake that we can all slip into is placing the significance of our eternal soul on the transient things that you own. We can all slip into that mistake. Not only will you have a pile of stuff that erodes, just like the world, but you won't have the time or energy to put into the things for eternity that you were called to do. Now, this isn't new information for us, right? I mean, we know that even the world knows this. And um, I, I heard a couple years ago, I heard a really funny stand-up routine by Jerry Seinfeld. Anybody ever heard of Jerry Seinfeld? Yeah? Um, he, was, he was at this Tonight Show. They were giving away large screen TVs, and his whole bit was, was hilarious. But he's like, hey, you actually have a problem on your hands now. Okay, you have this new large screen TV. You already have a large screen TV. Now you have to probably give it away to somebody, and you're going to potentially offend someone. And then he goes into this whole routine on how our homes are like trash processing centers. Okay, we go to the store, we're all excited, we buy something, you put it on the kitchen table, you open the box, and then you like play with it for a while, then eventually you put it prominently displayed on a shelf in the house, maybe in a living, a living area. Eventually it gets a little old, you put it in a drawer or a closet, then it finds its way, the trashification process, finds its way to the garage. Nothing ever comes back out of the garage, back into the house. You know, as Jerry would say, like, the word garage is another form of the word garbage. Um, <laughs> but the world can laugh at this, right? They, we, they know, just like we know, you buy stuff and it eventually turns into junk. But it's not really a laughing matter when you think about that's not where it ends. The world will end right there. We'll just laugh about it like, ah, I'll go buy something else new, new next week, right? No, we can't live for these things. Because these things have no eternal value. And if we put them over eternity that we're living for, we're in trouble. So here's what James is, is doing. He's taking all of us to the final destination. That stuff that you're breaking your back over, that stuff is eventually going to turn into trash, and you cannot waste your time in living for that. And here's what Jesus said about this. Remember Matthew 6, 24? Jesus said that you cannot love God and mammon. Some translations will take that word mammon, and they're like, we don't really use that word. What is that? So they'll just translate it with money. You can't love Jesus and money. But that's not actually what the word is. The word mammon is actually the things that you buy with money. It's money and possessions. So it's specifically, Jesus is specifically talking about the same thing James is talking about. And another thing that Jesus says in the same chapter, Matthew 6, 19, is do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So there's two things happening in this text that both Jesus and his brother James are in lockstep on. You can say whatever you want to say with your mouth. You can put a face, um, you can put on a face with how you present yourself. But Jesus says, you want to know what's going on in your heart? Look at your bank statement. 
That is not a way for other people to judge what you have going on. You can drive a $75,000 SUV, and that's not my job or anyone else's job to say, how's he spending his money? No, no. Maybe God just blessed this person because they were really generous, because God does work that way. We aren't to look at other people and their, all their travel destinations on Instagram and go, ooh, they're not spending their money wisely on eternity. No, that's not the point here. The point is to examine your own heart because you can even deceive yourself thinking, yeah, I, I'm generous with my, with my time and I go to church every Sunday. Well, your bank statement will tell you if your heart is deceived exactly where your heart is. It will. How much money are you giving to others? out of love. How much money are you giving back to the church? Are you barely scraping out 10% or are you going above and beyond your tithe and giving graciously and generously to others? Your bank statement doesn't lie. And that's James's point. Your heart is your heart will will be revealed with how you actually spend your money. And again, this isn't us pointing fingers, us judging other people and how they spend their money. Go ahead and buy a nice car. Bless other people. Do all those things that God blesses you. But don't forget, you are called to lay up more than just treasures here on earth. We are living for eternity. Personally examine what your money says about your heart. But to wrap up this first point, this is why we have things like Give Life Month. November for our church is Give Life Month. I'll talk a little bit more about that um, at the end of the message today. But James is giving a warning to the rich who, ex- who expose um, you know, other people. They oppress, they exploit the underprivileged. Riches will amount to nothing in the end. But be humble and the righteous will prevail. James is actually talking to the fake Christians in the room. Anyone can get behind philanthropy. There's plenty of moralistic people who would rather give their money to you know, a good cause than to the government and, and taxes. But this isn't just a message of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol where you can stop being an Ebenezer Scrooge and start being nice with your money now. The point is, for all of us, is to listen to this warning and examine your own heart. Are you into doing things like giving up your time to give blood? Are you, are you hungry and passionate to go above and beyond and, and, and do some stuff for Carolina Pregnancy Center and, and give some more donations to them on top of your tithe because that's a local organization in our community that is helping underprivileged people and people with the greatest needs, young moms and families. Only you know what your bank statement says about your heart, and that's between you and God. But I hope you're not living more for mammon than you actually think you are. That's, that's something for you to talk with the Lord about. Now, the next six verses, they take a hard turn in terms of tone, all right? Because it's not directed at the rich people who abuse others anymore. Now it's going to be directed at the people on the receiving end of the mistreatment, which at this time in history was the church. This is, this is written really early. The church wasn't even called they didn't even have the name Christian yet, okay? They were just followers of the way. And they are being persecuted, and this is what James has to say to them about preparing for the judgment day. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There are people in the room right now who are feeling this same thing. You're feeling some pressure. You're in a trial. You're suffering. Life can be so hard. And maybe it's a consequence of a decision that you have made. Maybe it's a consequence of a decision someone else has made. And you're like suffering from secondhand smoke on the whole issue. We've all been there. But the exhortation is for you right here to be patient. This season is not going to last forever. But notice, we aren't just supposed to wait for a happy ending, right? Is that what James is telling us? Just be patient. Everything is going to work out in the end, and it'll all feel good, and eventually you'll, you'll put a smile on your face, and sunshine is going to come out. That's not what James is saying being patient about. He's saying, if you look at it again, look at that verse, verse 7 and 8, be patient Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's the emphasis. The coming of the Lord. Now, this probably isn't what everyone wants to hear. I get that. Patience can be hard. But for you to accept this and own this, what do you have to believe? You have to believe that problems are never going to fully go away in this sin-cursed world. They're just not. And you also have to believe that the only way you're going to find lasting relief and joy and complete peace is when you are united with your Savior in heaven. In the final day, when, when you enter into the eternal new earth, that's when you're going you're to receive it. If you don't believe those two things, you're not going to patiently await the return of the Lord while you're struggling through the persecutions and the trials of this life. You're just not. So it's even deeper than feeling good about one day seeing Jesus face to face. That's great, but it goes deeper than that. It's loving your relationship with Jesus so much that it becomes your motivation and your hope right now in this period of the waiting. You see the difference there? You have to love Jesus more than you love finding happiness. And when you find joy and peace in the midst of the suffering, it's because you've been patiently waiting for the return of the Lord and you're invested in your relationship with him. The Greek word for be patient here is actually used three times in this short paragraph. And I love Koine Greek because there's actually two different words for patience. You know, a lot of times the Greek just makes English look lazy if you think about it. Uh, you know, we use the word love, and it could mean 157 different things, right? Well, the Greeks didn't really have that problem because they had four distinct words for love that all meant something very specific. Similar to the word patience, they had a, they had a version of patience, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because I don't want to butcher it today. But this is the kind of patience that's long-suffering. It's an attitude of self-restraint that enables you to resist hasty retaliation in the face of being provoked. This isn't just being patient as you wait on your, on your food at a very slow fast food restaurant. Okay, it's, it's not that patience. This is a deeper kind that doesn't look at the immediate, 
but intentionally forces yourself to look 10 steps down the road and tolerate someone because you know where they're coming from and you know where they're going and you have a built-in empathy for them rather than vindictiveness. You see how verse 8 says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand? When I read that, I was just like, ooh, that sounds good. What, is, what does this mean? Establish your hearts. It's all about waiting for the coming of the Lord, but is anyone else asking that? Did you, did you see that phrase? You're like, that sounds like something I want. Sounds like something I need. This conveys the idea of strengthening and making firm your inner life as a decisive act. It's basically committing to standing firm and being immovable versus being agitated and shaken at everything that comes your way. And I know we all want to stand up and press forward and not be shaken. This developing an inner stability, having an attitude of firmness and courage, it sounds great, but you're only like, I don't know how to get that, David. Like, can, can you help me out here? I don't like people misrepresenting me. I hate it when people overlook me because they don't agree with my values. Here's how you get it. You remind yourself the context that James is, is teaching us. This life isn't my end game. I have a bigger goal and purpose for my life than that person does. I wish they had what I have. They are missing out, but I'm not going to let their unbelief and their nasty attitude shake me. How do you get that? Again, James tells us it's right there. The coming of the Lord draws nigh. Do you see the second phrase in verse 8? That's the attitude. That's the focus that we have to have. It's the answer. This unshakable confidence in the face of hardship comes from having a hope for the future that's not in a political party of choice. It's not based on your skill set or your personality. It's not dependent on your family name or your reputation. It's solely based on your living hope, Jesus Christ. You have a confident expectation that what happens in this life will matter for the future. And your identity is not wrapped up in anything else. Your identity is secure. No matter what somebody says about you or does to you, it really can just roll right off my shoulders because I have an identity in Jesus Christ, and he is the rock that my foundation is built on. So because of that, here are some practical applications. There's some things that you don't need to do anymore. They don't fit into your new identity in Jesus Christ. And the activity of your life is now being redefined, and there's some things being pulled off the table now. So look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. That'd be the first one. You don't need to grumble and complain uh, with each other. That you, so you may not be judged. There's a biblical illustration here that James uses of the Old Testament prophets. And, um, you know, he's using Job. It's so helpful to look back and be reminded of the character traits of our God and for, and for what he has done in the past. The steadfastness of Job. Here's a guy who lost everything. Everything he had, he lost it. None of us have, have gone through something like Job went through. But the purpose of looking back on Job isn't to be like, oh, man, Job is so amazing. I wish I could be like that guy. What does it say in the text? What does it point to? Does it point to Job's characteristics? Who had the characteristic there? Just look at, look at this with me. Uh, where am I at? Yeah, verse, verse 11. 
You have heard the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord, we're talking about God's characteristics. As we look back to this story in the Old Testament, we're not putting the human on the platform. We're looking at what God did in Job's life. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. The same God that Job looked to and got through his trial with is the same God that you and I have. He is compassionate still. He is merciful for us. Here's another practical takeaway. It's in verse 12. So people are people, but God will carry you through. You don't need to grumble and complain. Secondly, another thing that we can take off the table now in our new identity is do not swear and take oaths so that you do not fall under condemnation. That's verse 12. Now, we have to remember the context here because there is a judgment day coming where you will have to give an account. You should be different. We're not, you know, we're not talking about the rich who are opposing God and living for their wealth and they're facing doom. The Christians who are being oppressed and persecuted need to cling to their living hope. That's the context. And when James uses this phrase, um, in, which in my translation is above all, he's not saying this is the most important thing. Is What he's really saying there is on top of it all, if, if you follow me, okay? Like, this isn't above all everything. No, this isn't the gospel. No, he's just saying, hey, on top of it all, you need to be careful with what you communicate, what comes out of your mouth. This is a very misunderstood verse. But some people think that it means I'm not allowed to swear on the Bible and take an oath that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is an example. When, when people take a verse like this out of context, it's an example of how you can oversimplify Scripture and make it just mean some like religious checklist option, and you've isolated it from its context. James is in the middle of talking about our future in heaven, looking to heaven, how we prepare for judgment day, and is what he's saying is let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't, you shouldn't have to add all these flowery words to make people believe you. When you're facing persecution, they should know if that guy says something or if she says something, their word is gold. So they mean what they say. That's where James is at in the context. Your words should matter. Be honest. Speak the truth at all time. You don't have to, you don't have to elaborate or embellish stories. Don't say a bunch of ridiculous, flippant things. Your word should matter. Now, here's the final point. It's not about perfection in the present. That's not reality. We're talking about progress for the future. And as you're living a genuine Christian life, going beyond a profession to actually doing these new and exciting and meaningful things, here's the last takeaway. It's point three. Prayerfully, prayerfully engage in this life for the next. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the prayers of the faithful are mighty in everything. Believers should be praying for one another in sickness, in health, in joy, in happiness. We should be praying for each other at all times. Just like verse 12, though, Christians have a bad habit of sometimes taking verses 15 and 16, ripping them out of the context and making them into something that they're actually not. So first, before I even address this, I want to point out what is the emphasis here? The emphasis is prayer. You can see that in verse 15 specifically. 
Um, so when he says, pray over someone, with the, the elders, pray over someone, and he's talking about anointing them with oil. In the New Testament, oil had medicinal qualities for sure. You can see it throughout the New Testament that olive oil was used as a common medicine. So in our technologically advanced day where we have the best medicines in the history of the earth, we have to notice that there is nothing wrong with medicine. Make that part of your treatment, but it shouldn't be the be-all, end-all. What's the other component that has to go with this? It's prayer, which prayer is the emphasis. It's the primary part of it. And you may be healed. That's, that's true. When you pray, sometimes you'll be healed. Other times you won't be healed. God isn't promising that you have this magic formula where if you're sick, just go to the elders of your church. They can anoint you with oil and pray over you, and you'll be healed. That's not what we see in the New Testament. I mean, Paul had friends who were sick, right? Epaphroditus, he never got well as far as we can see in Scripture. Maybe he did later, but it wasn't revealed in Scripture. Uh, Trophimus, another one of Paul's friends, he got sick in Miletus in 1 Timothy 4, and Paul left him. I think Paul would have prayed over him. This isn't giving us a promise that you'll always get over COVID-19 the, the minute you pray for it um, and have the elders anoint your head with oil. No, it's saying you can still take medicine. You should be praying, but don't get upset when the Bible doesn't when, when the Bible doesn't promise something and then that one thing doesn't happen, don't get upset over that. The point is to pray. That's what verse 16 says one more time. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So as you are looking ahead to the judgment day, to the future that we have with Jesus Christ, we should be praying in this, in this present life. You know, we're not going to fight with one another. We're not going to grumble and complain. We're going to be patient. We're also going to pray about it. But in verses 19 and 20, I love how James ends this, okay? Because it's not just praying. This isn't just a straight vertical relationship and that's it. It actually gets a little bit harder than that. Praying can be hard sometimes. But when we realize what we're doing, it's like, let me run to prayer. Let me get on my knees and pray. Verse 19 and 20 actually take it another step, where if you're prayerfully engaging in this life and preparing for the next life, you're also going to have to have some hard conversations. This is rounding out this entire idea, getting beyond just the sickness part. Sometimes you might have to address a brother or sister who's wandering. Let me read verse 19 again. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, when James uses this word wander, you may think, well, all right, was this just one of those inadvertent, oh, I thought I was headed this way, but I accidentally ended up over here. In the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, that's never how the word wander is used. It's, it's any deviation from the truth, minor or major. But this wandering means that you're going into a pattern of disbelief and you're walking away from Jesus. Wandering isn't just an inadvertent drift, but it's more of a I love my sin more than I love what Jesus wants me to do right now. And this is almost always accompanied with twisting scripture to make it say what you want it to say. You can find a way to make Scripture say what you want it to say when you isolate it out of its context, when you 
say one word means something, redefine words. And Christians will wander at times. Sometimes people who are in the church who never knew Jesus Christ will wander. Sometimes professing Christians, that, that's the profession Christian, and it turns out that they're not actually a Christian. But sometimes it's genuine followers of Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll trip up, remember? It's, it's not perfection right now. It's progress. So there's going to be people in our midst. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have seen people wander away and drift away. It's not an easy topic to talk about. This is heavy, and it, and it can really be heartbreaking for, for some of us, really for all of us, depending on who we know that has wandered. Sometimes when people wander away, they turn their back on the church and they don't even want to talk to you. Sometimes when people wander away, they're still open to talking. They still, have, they still will listen to you, okay? And this is what James is telling us that we should be doing. Our response is to go after them. And then it's up to them. Then, it, then they will reveal whether or not they just knew about Christ or whether they really knew Christ. But we need, as we need to listen to what the Holy Spirit is revealing to James, and he has given us a recipe. It's a, it's a recipe of confession and prayer and repentance. You know, confess your sins one to another. We need to be doing that amongst ourselves. We also need to go after the wanderers and pull them back in. Conviction is something that we talked about this a couple weeks ago should always be sweet for the believer. When you, when you were convicted and you confess something, you should never have shame. You should never have that as a Christian. Confession never brings condemnation. Confession always brings restoration. So remember that. But the Holy Spirit empowers us to confess and repent for where we fall short. The gospel frees us up to not feel the condemnation when we are wrong. I mean, we're wrong all the time. <laughs> it's liberating to know that your sin doesn't define you and that your mistakes are under the blood. We don't have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect. Thank you, Jesus. We live by grace through faith in the age of grace, so we own our sin, we confess it, we repent. In this side of eternity, we will never stop repenting and confessing our sin. But James ends this letter with probably the most difficult thing that we as genuine followers of Jesus have to do. And that's sometimes not just get right with ourselves, but sometimes actually take that hard conversation to a wandering person. Is anyone in this room thankful for someone who came after them when they were wandering and had a heart-to-heart -heart conversation? Right? We're called to do that. I'm thankful for people in my life who've had those conversations. My parents... Sometimes it's even been a, a teacher of mine. We all play that role. The reality of sin is when we give ourselves over to sin, the heart hardens. And as the heart hardens, our reactions and our attitudes get harder and darker. And we become more angry and more aggressive. And the longer someone wanders, the further off they go, the harder it is for them to come back into the fold. So we have to lovingly reach out to them. Worship team, you can come up right now. 
Another parallel passage to this is 1 Peter 4. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God has supplied, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That same formula that we just heard James talked about is fleshed out a little bit more specifically in 1 Peter 4. But above all, keep loving one another. That is the secret juice that will make this work. If you're not loving someone, it's not going to ever, ever be received well. You're not loving someone enough if you let them wander off into the untruth. I'm so grateful that James, and really the Bible as a whole, doesn't sugarcoat anything. You just see that for us to love one another sometimes requires us to have those uncomfortable conversations. It's going to require some effort, even if the person doesn't like what you have to say. This is the same thing we, again, see in Matthew 18. Go to the person, speak truth and love. And they may disagree in that moment, but if you're doing it out of love, even if it's not resolved immediately, it's the right thing to do. It's what you're called to do. And the focus is not on this life, in my relationship, and how it affects my plans right now, the focus in what is this going to do for this person for eternity. They're wandering right now, and their path has a very bad ending. A genuine faith is more than a profession. It's a faith that does what God has done for you. show that with our lives, when we give justice and speak truth in mercy, in love, we are showing the glory of God. Do more than just show up on Sunday. Do more than just think about it every once in a while and pray before you you eat your food. No, this is a lifestyle. A genuine faith means you are a new creature. You You have a new heart and a new passions. You have a new identity that forms your activity. He loved you, and he's calling you to love others. He came after you when you were wandering, and he's calling you to pursue others in your life. None of this would be possible if we didn't have someone to look to. But we do have someone to look to. We have a living hope. His name is Jesus, and we have a living hope for the future. Would you stand up? We're going to sing in a second here. And for some of us, we need to just pray, praise our Father in heaven and call out to him. Praise the name of Jesus, our living hope. Maybe some others in here need to actually get something right. You've been living for mammon. You have been grumbling and complaining. You have not been waiting patiently. There's nothing about your life that matches up to what James has just described. Maybe you'd like to step aside over here. We've got Aaron and Sarah They can take you right to the back. We have a little private room where you can pray. You can also come right up to the front and you can get things right with the Lord. 
let's lift high the name of Jesus, who we are looking forward to his coming again. You know better. Align your will to God's will because you have been bought with a price and you were created for his glory.